Have you ever wondered what it takes to serve others day in and day out? To live selflessly with the care of others at the forefront? Today's guest does just that. She truly loves to serve and lives a life of service. Mary Kay Meeks is a former nun. She's also a former adjunct professor at LaSalle University, where she taught on marriage and family, sociology of work, work and family, and social movement. She is now the executive director of Face to Face, which is a human service organization offering free meals, health, legal, and social services for the marginalized population. Her deepest passion is for creating and sustaining meaningful relationships. Are you ready to learn more about Mary Kay and her journey to the second phase? I sure am. Tune in now. Hello, friends. Welcome to this episode of the Second Phase Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Graham, a personal branding expert and photographer. I am so excited you are here with me today to chat all about personal branding and life in the second phase. What is the second phase? The second phase for me was a change in careers and learning how to navigate a new world and build a business from the ground up when I was terrified to put myself out into the world. For some, the second phase is a significant lifestyle change. No matter the definition of your second phase, we are here together to learn about creating a personal brand that stands out and makes an impact and grow as our authentic selves and follow our callings, our passions, our visions, and our values. Wherever you are listening today, be sure and pause for just a minute and leave a review. Your ratings and reviews are what help the word spread about the show. If you find the information presented in the podcast helpful, please share it with friends and others and leave that review so that others can find us too. Now grab your cup of coffee or the dog's leash and let's dive into a new episode. Hi, Mary Kay. Welcome to the Second Phase Podcast. Hi, Robin. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you. As as you know, you have been a big inspiration to me and your place of work, which we're going to dive into in a little bit, has been something that I have found immense joy from visiting. So will you tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. I'm Mary Kay Meeks Hank. I live in Doylestown. Um, really the Plumstead end of Doylestown, and I work in Germantown. So I have a big trek every day, not every day, but most days. And uh, I'm married. I've been married for 27 years. I have two daughters, a 25-year-old Tara and a 22-year-old Erin, and they have both been launched. So no one is at home with us right now, and that is a big, big shift in our lives right now. Oh yeah, you're officially empty nesters. Officially. So I've been working at Face to Face in Germantown for the last 13 years. I'm the executive director now. I was hired in 2007 as the director of operations, which in itself is something funny. Um, and, And after the founder or the first executive director, Eileen Smith, left, in 2009, in the summer of 2009, I became the executive director. So I've been doing that ever since. Okay. So 13 years, that's a long time. It is a long time. 
So let's tell everybody what face-to-face -face is first, because sure. I, I would like to start there and preface like the type of work you're doing now. And then I want to take a step back in history a little bit from okay. your first phase and where your feet kind of got wet for the work you're doing today. Okay. Okay. So face-to-face -face is a human service organization. Um, we are located in East Germantown. We're on the grounds of St. Vincent's Roman Catholic Church. We actually rent our space from St. Vincent's. We are a full service human service organization. We offer meals, hot noon meals, five days a week. And then we do breakfast, hot breakfast, four days a week. That's kind of the portal for our adult services. In addition to serving meals, and we serve the meals when you, you know, I could say um, we have a soup kitchen, but that is so not reflective of the experience. So the experience is that we open our doors at nine o'clock in the morning and people start coming in. And we really, um, for one of a better word, a better descriptive word, we're a community center. So we are a place where people who are very, very marginalized, most of them living in deep poverty, come and hang. You know, they come, they sit, they get a table. If it's a breakfast day, they get coffee and breakfast. If it's not a breakfast day, there's always coffee and there's something else for them to eat in the morning. Um, and and they, they sit at the tables. And often, um, if you ask me about a particular person, I pretty much know what table they're sitting at because they self-select where they want to sit. We have round tables. Sometimes they're engaged in conversation. Sometimes they're reading the newspaper. If they've been walking all night with no place to go, they have their head down. You know, it, you'll, you, you can see a variety of things. We actually have a table of uh, deaf people who have been coming to face-to-face -face for the last year or so. And that's so heartening to know that in a, a very much speaking and hearing environment, they feel at home. Um, so the dining room is our adult portal. In addition to the dining room, we have three primary adult services, a health center, a legal center, and social services. So the three services work in concert. They're each open three, four days a week, basically. Legal, not, not quite as much because there's so much follow-up. But, but what they do is try to see the whole person. So sometimes people come in, they don't really even know what's wrong. So they might start at the health center. They'll, they'll come into our um, common waiting room. They sign up and they, they want to see a nurse because they don't feel good. And they might come in and then see our nurse. And the nurse, you know, begins the conversation. It always begins with the conversation. And then she'll take their blood pressure. And, and then, oh, let's say, just as an example, their blood pressure sky high. What makes face-to-face -face kind of unique is that in that health center encounter, the nurse can then begin to ask some questions that can uncover what might be some of the social determinants of that high blood pressure. She's talking with this person and they're, they're filling her in on things. And then somehow in the midst of it, they, they say, and I got this letter, I'm getting thrown out of where I lived. Uh, uh, uh. And all of a sudden, that blood pressure is something different. Of course, it has a physical manifestation, but it's a legal issue. You know, this is an issue that demands the attention now of our attorney, 
um, to check in to see whether this is a legal eviction or if it's an illegal eviction, if there's a habitability issue with the place where they're living. And then a follow-up with the social worker to see what's plan B here for this person. So we really try, really try to be as collaborative among those services as we possibly can. I'm not trying in any way to say that that is not a challenge. The needs are enormous. I, our social worker pretty much runs from the beginning of the day to the end because someone could come in and say, I got this letter from the welfare office. I don't understand it at all. And so he begins to get on the phone and make calls and see if he can make any sense out of it. Another person comes in like it's a major emergency. I don't have any deodorant. So <laughs> things span the, the gamut. Um, we'll have somebody walking down the hallway who isn't necessarily into or needing a programmatic service but is obviously incontinent. And so we've got to, you know, kind of make that detour. We've got to get that guy into one of our ancillary services, which is our wash period. We have a single shower bathroom facility where people can discreetly get a shower. So in our two, uh, in the dining room and in the wash period, we never take names. We keep good records in health, legal, and social um, because of the nature of the work. But if you come in for a meal, or if you come in for a shower, we never ask you to write your name down. Signing your name on a document that says, hey, I don't even have enough to eat. Hey, I, I, I can't get a shower anywhere. So we keep those, um, the dining room is obviously not discreet in that you know, it's lively and, and surprisingly joyful, um, but the wash interior really is discreet. Um, our, our facilities guy handles the men and our receptionist handles the woman. Everybody gets a nice soft towel and washcloth, a bag of toiletries. And if their clothes are kind of ready to be hit the uh, trash can, we have a whole closet of unsized clothing like sweatpants, sweatshirts, socks, underwear for men and women that we can give them. Um, some choose to take them. And some don't. And, and like everything else, um, we're dealing with adults. And so we're very conscious. And I've learned a lot over the years about the way to be in the community. We are um, offering services to adults who are just like us, except for their economic um, disparity, you know, but they're just like us. And so we might say to somebody, hey, you know, would you like new clothing? And they look right at us and say, no, thanks. And that really is their decision. We don't say, you, you, oh, your clothes are filthy. They stink. You, you've got to change them. Because once we do that, we destroy the fabric of the relationship. I think, I think what makes face-to-face -face the, the special place that it is, is really not so much we, that, what we do, you know? And, and I'm not disparaging, you know, the goodness of serving a meal or getting a shower or helping somebody get their record expunged or, um, you know, stay on top of their diabetes or help them look for housing. They're all good things, but they're not rocket science. I think what makes our place unique is the way we approach it. We really, and I say this honestly, you know, the staff and volunteers and guests 
make sure that when people come in, they're really welcome. So many people who come to Face to Face would be people that we might, if we were walking down the street and they were walking toward us, we might be tempted to cross to the other side of the street because frankly, many of them deal with chronic and serious mental illness. But somehow when they get to face to face, they are recognized, big deal, right? Recognized like a human being. And we, we have learned, I certainly have learned, and um, I, I tried to share that the, the uh, probably the most powerful lesson I've had at face to face is just that, um, that everyone is really in their humanity the same. Um, you know, I, I recognize that, you know, there are other women my age who are living in conditions that I wouldn't have the fortitude or the courage or the get up and go to do. But, you know, when you get into a conversation, and, and you know this, people who might be um, marked with gunshots and have histories that are nothing like your own, when you start to talk, that mutuality of human um, connection is, is so real. And I, I think that's why, despite the, um, the utter destruction of some of their lives, there's joy in that moment because there is a mutuality and the transformation that happens goes both ways. It's never just one way. This is not a place to be a do-gooder. This is a place to share humanity with people we would never have the opportunity to meet. Mary Kay, you said a couple of things. And the one thing I really want to emphasize is that when you're talking about recognizing that humanality and the fact that we are all humans, at face-to-face, -face, and I can speak to this because I visit not yeah. as often as I would like, but I have experienced all of those things that you have said. And the, the guests are treated with dignity. There is no judgment and there's no shaming. And they are in an environment every single day where they are being judged. They are being shamed. People are looking down on them. Yeah. And you touched on something that I think is really important to emphasize. And that is that a lot of them have significant mental illness. Yeah. And I, I think that there, I believe that there is a misconception related to homelessness and poverty that everybody who is poor or homeless is a drug addict or a criminal. Right. And that's not the case. Not I, at all. You know, I have just the time I have spent there and I feel so blessed that you're there and close enough to Doylestown that I can come and visit. But as I've gotten to know people, I mean, there it's, there's a significant, um, I guess, difference between the ones that maybe have made bad choices throughout the course of their lives, those that were victims of circumstances and those that have mental illness. But all, all the same, the ones that were addicted to drugs or do have a criminal record, they recognize their mistakes and they're sorry for them. And they'll tell you that. They'll say, you know, I made some bad decisions. I hope nobody else ever makes the decisions I made. And they're, they're very open and, and they'll share that with you. And some of them, yes, will make that same decision again. But we don't know what their past was. We don't know what experiences they had to lead them to the choices they made either. So I think that that dignity, no judgment, no shaming, I think those are such powerful gifts that you give anybody who walks in that door. And it's a place of refuge. 
Yes, it is a place of refuge. When we do our, our volunteer workshops, which we do on a regular basis, and we invite new volunteers to come in and, and kind of learn about um, learn about our guests, and we, we try to uh, share their stories from their own perspectives, not from our own. And we, we say very clearly, it's neither a condemnation of their lives, nor is it an excuse, but to say that like Queen Elizabeth has no more idea of the lives that we live than we do of the lives of the desperately poor. And I think just by virtue of geography, because of where we are located in East Germantown, the vast majority of our population is African-American. And the, the history of Germantown is that if, if you drive around, you're gonna see some big, big houses. And when white flight started to happen in the 60s and 70s, when people were afraid that African-Americans were getting too close and moving into the neighborhood, what happens was that houses that were selling at a high level right away dropped to a much lower level. People just wanted to, white people just wanted to get out. They sold much um, under the market value. And what happened was the people who moved in couldn't afford to keep those houses up. So what, what happens is when people drive through, there is the, um, the tendency to connect race with the, the, the destruction of the neighborhood or you know the, the loss of dignity of these edifices. And it has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with economy. And so in our geographical area, we're looking at people who have experienced, the people we serve have experienced intergenerational poverty. So poverty has been going on in their families for a long time. So when you were talking about, you know, people who come to us either with chronic significant mental illness or people who have made choices, in, in middle and upper class societies, those same choices are made all the time. But there's a net, you know, there, there's family, there's money, there are resources. And when you don't have any of that, and not even that people in, in the community don't love one another and their families, but without resources, without access to good treatment for the, the crack epidemic really ruined urban black America. It just tore it down. And so it wasn't a thing of teenage kids using crack. It was moms and dads, grandmothers and grandfathers, great-grandmothers and great-grandfathers. It just wiped out communities. And, you know, now we hear so much about the opioid crisis, which tends not to affect African-American communities as much as Hispanic and white communities. And all of a sudden, now we're talking about the opioid crisis in terms of a health crisis, whereas the crack crisis was a criminal justice crisis and it so so we're, we're looking at intergenerational poverty and systemic racism and um I, I say this with um with caution because i'm white mm -hmm. i'm privileged i'm educated i um, and my children are white and privileged and educated and so i'm very um i'm aware of that i'm so so unbelievably aware of that. And I've, I've tried to read and educate myself and always to be in the community with humility because I don't know. That's the truth. I could be there 13 years, 
I could be there 26 years. I could be out there a thousand years. I don't really know. I'm there to stand. Um, I'm, I'm standing there because of my values and my hope that um, getting to that mutuality, you know, experiences, micro experiences of mutuality, um, of, of practicing, recognizing my own racism, of practicing reaching beyond all the barriers that society sets out. Um, but, I, but I say that um, with, with, with a little bit of trepidation, knowing that anyone could, could easily say, you have no clue. And that's the truth. That is yeah. the truth. It is true. There is a barrier there. And it, unfortunately, it's, it, it's multifold. It's not just color of skin. It's also you know, the economic status. The Absolutely. Socioeconomic status. Yes. Is the right term. Um, okay. So we've learned a lot about face-to-face -face and a lot about you as a person and how you treat others. And I think that's all so empowering to see someone else and um, empowering and inspiring for other people to follow suit. What I would like to do is shift gears just a little bit because your story from when you were young is what just, I guess, really wows me. Um, so you were a nun. I was. You went to college, you changed and then went, well, you went, tell, explain the situation. Okay, you went, I will. You went to the college that the sisterhood was associated with. Right. So when I want to know, how did you come about the decision to become a nun? I know, it is kind of funny because um, I'd say, uh, 10 to 15 years before I entered the convent, it was popular among Catholic families. There, there were hundreds going in every year. When I entered in 1978, there were 12 of us. And I entered the Sisters of St. Joseph of Chesson Hill. Um, so, you know, people in this area might be familiar with Norwood Fonfon um, Academy, the Mounts, um, um, Justin Hill College, all of those colleges are associated with the Sisters of St. Joseph. I knew them from high school and I had SSJs in my family. It was not a very um, popular thing. I, I always, and I, I, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to make this clear. Um, I grew up in a, you know, a pretty traditional Catholic family. We went to Mass every Sunday, all the holy days, very traditional Catholic family. Um, and probably by the end of high school, I was intrigued. I, I had gotten to know some younger sisters at my aunt's convent when she was there. And I was, I was intrigued by what I was seeing was not this, um, dead lifestyle, but this very active, um, lifestyle. I would probably at the end of high school describe myself as a feminist. So, so I, I was thinking as a feminist. And, and moving toward what, what was feeling and looking to me like a good option um, for my life. Anyway, so I went to college for a year at Westchester University. Um, always wanted to go to Villanova, but didn't want my parents to have to pay for it since I knew I was going in the convent. So went to Westchester. And then in September of 78, I entered the SSJs. So um, whenever any kind of religious formation involves a couple of years of just that formation, 
so my our first year was as postulants really kind of learning about the life um this was an active religious order so there was no cloistering or anything like that and then the next year was a divitiate year which was a year really dedicated to prayer and reflection that was a little bit more um cordoned off we didn't read the newspaper we didn't watch the news um was was different i i will share this funny thing i think i entered the convent um not thinking about the work to be very honest with you i i was uh i always had um a sense of of god's presence i always did as a kid and um a sense of that relationship in community that appealed to me. But when I realized, oh my God, I have to teach grade school. I, was like, oh, I don't want to teach grade school at all. <laughs> and um, I, I mean, that is like the understatement. When I first taught, I was teaching fifth grade. They were 10, I was 20. I was like a spitting difference ahead of them. I had no clue what I was doing because I hadn't finished a degree or anything. I had one year of college, a little bit of college in my postulate, none in my novitiate. And I went out with what's called a mission novice. You know, I went out and I, I was an intern in Chestnut Hill. I'm not Chestnut Hill, Cherry Hill, New Jersey for uh, like two months. And I loved it. I was in this house of, Fabulous women, fabulous, smart, articulate, um, grappling with all the things of the church of the late 70s, women's ordination, um, liberation theology, uh, you name it. Um, it was so energizing for me. I, I thought, wow, I am really in my own skin here. I loved it, loved it, loved it. Two months later, <laughs> somebody came and said, oh, you got to go to Levittown and teach fifth grade. And I went from this energetic, exciting community to a much, much, much older, older community of 20 some women. And it was very institutional living. And I would say it was very difficult for me. I kind of threw myself into the work and met really nice parents. Um, I, I love the kids, even though I didn't really like teaching. I taught, taught fifth grade for a number of years, and then I taught seventh and eighth grade, taught with wonderful people. Um, then I got a year off to go back finally and finish my college degree. So I started my <laughs> college degree in 77, and I graduated in 87. And anyway. by the time I had graduated, I had made my final vows in 86, which um, before that you, you make vows once a year um, and then you make final vows, which I made in 86. Now I like to refer to them as my semi-final vows. Um, so, <laughs> anyway, so then after I uh, made my final vows, got my degree, then I w went to Newark, New Jersey. And that was such a radicalizing experience for me. Um, I lived in a wonderful community of women. First year, I taught eighth grade in a school in Newark, New Jersey. Hated that as much as I hated teaching in Levittown. And, but I was getting, finishing up my master's at Fordham in uh, 
sociology and a lot around research and planning. So I started to kind of look around the area, talk to the other sisters, and there was a, pa a, a parish, a very small little African-American parish, very close to where I was living. And I asked one of the sisters I lived with if, uh, if the pastor there could use a pastoral associate. That was very, that was very popular in New Jersey. Um, many women were pastoral associates. It would be like the assistant pastor that we would have around here. In New Jersey, it was much more, um, I guess, uh, liberal in their thinking than, than Philadelphia, for sure. So anyway, um, I, I pursued this job. I ended up being a pastoral associate <laughs> at St. Charles in Newark. Um, I ran the RCIA program, which was the adult initiation program. And I ran all the children's religious ed. And it was my first real experience in the African-American community. And I, I just loved it. I, I, I learned so much, so much. But it was a very, very small staff, the pastor and me. And he probably would uh, not like me telling this, but as we were working together, it was obvious to me uh, that, that I had had all this formation in spirituality, quite a bit. Um, and, and that really was the ground of my being. And as he and I met and talked, I was like, wow, I don't, I don't think he's had that. So we started to talk and I could tell how interested he was in learning and, and you know, he told me, you know, they, they really, they had a lot of theological and scriptural training but not really the spirituality that kind of uh, fills your life, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, we talked and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. We talked ourselves right into a relationship and out of the lives we had lived. So the pastor there is now my husband, and we've been married for almost 28 years. And um, I left first. Oh, and, and as I don't know whether you can imagine this, but we... We saw therapists, we did all kinds of discernment, we made retreats. I mean, we didn't take this decision lightly at all. And I think um, for at my congregation, I think it was very hard. They, they didn't want to see me leave, and I, I um, appreciated that. And it's funny enough, this will not surprise him either, I really didn't leave because of my husband. I had fallen in love with somebody else before. While I was in the congregation, um, which means nothing other than I was getting a sense that I might be moving to a different way of life. Um, what I learned about myself in my years in community is that all of a sudden I didn't know where to stop. So at the end of the day, when I would go home to the convent, I was still on, if that makes any sense, still feeling like I had to be up and on and, you know, talking to people and engaging. And, and there was no downtime at all. And even though I was very young, I was still in my late 20s, I, I started to get the sense, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't right. I need, I need to have work and then some home space. But I wasn't, I wasn't getting that. So long story short. John and I 
find ourselves in love with each other and um, struggling to figure out what to do. Um, I left. He left uh, several months later. We both found jobs and apartments and, um, and then worked on what this was going to be for about a year and a half before we got married again. I left the congregation and I thought in my heart, I thought, hmm, I bet I won't wake up tomorrow. That is how I just thought, I don't think I'll wake up. I just, wow. I think that's it. And I did wake up. And what was shocking to me that day and has been all these years since, I mean, I can tell you, I was in the congregation with both feet. I was involved and engaged and um, really uh, hopeful for the church at the time, um, hopeful that things were really going to evolve. Um, and the day after I left, to this day, I have never once for one half second regretted that decision. Never. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't hard. It was very hard for my parents. Very hard. Um, and it took them time to uh, reconcile with it. Um, certainly not for my siblings, because they were the same age as I was. They were like, oh, well, whatever. Um, and then, um, then John and I had to figure out, you know, what, an, what a new life for us would be. At this point, I was early 30s. And so if I was going to have children, I was thinking, oh, I got to have them soon. Yeah. And so I was on this path where I didn't ever expect to have children. And then in 90, we got married in 92 and had our oldest daughter in 94. Yeah. And here you are today. And here I am. And I, I love that story because I think it's, um, it kind of launched you into this life of service without being married to a life of service. Right. And right. you still do all of those things today. You, you fight for the, you know, the underprivileged, you, you're there to support and hold up and put them on a pedestal that there's no other place in the world that they're going to be put on a pedestal. And I just, I love your heart for that. And I just think it's so inspiring because there's, there are so many people out there who feel lost, you know, they're just not being fulfilled. Their passions they're not sure what they are, or they haven't identified with them yet, or they're not following them. And you followed your passion, you in multiple ways, you know, and then you follow different passions and <laughs> all of these things. But I think you're a, the perfect example of life doesn't have to be what it started as. You, you can shift and then create a life that's completely different, but yet still fulfills and has a purpose that's right. similar to where it started. And there's a thread. I mean, for, there's totally a thread. Like when my, my children, I, I, you know, we, we probably approached everything rather stupidly, like, okay, jump um, in terms of finances and all that. But anyway, when I was pregnant with my oldest daughter, I said to my mom, when I realized, oh my God, I, I, I have to keep working. Like we don't have any money, none. <laughs> So I said to my mom, will you help me? She said, of course. And I said, mom, just give me three years. The first three years are so important. If you just help me, I'm going to try to do um, a job share where I split a job with somebody. And I ended up actually split, doing a job share with Tara Monahan, who is now the program director at Face to Face. So 
she and I um, split a job. We were um, social work supervisors, and that's another whole story. I was working in foster care and social work, for which I had absolutely no uh, training. But anyway, that's another story. Um, there, there's a path here, though. There, yes, there's, there's you know, a path. You, it doesn't matter what someone throws at you. You're able to do it and do it well. Well, 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 we'll see. But then I, I, I had finished my degrees and I did find out that I love teaching college. And so I started teaching when I was up in Washington, New Jersey, where we lived and both of our girls were born. I started teaching at Warren County Community College. And oh, I, I just, I, I just loved it, loved it, really um, loved working with the students. My, my field was sociology. So I was talking constantly about inequality, racism, sexism, um, lack of access. Really, I was looking at through the lens of marginalization in, in everything that I was doing and teaching and, you know, looking at culture and all that, loving it, really having a wonderful experience. When I moved um, down to Doylestown, I continued to work in foster care for about a year. And then I pretty much cobbled together a teaching career. I taught at LaSalle University quite a bit, actually about three or four classes every semester. And I thought it was such a privilege to be working with these young people. They were, you know, between 18 and 22. And you could see in their eyes the change. You could see that once, you know, you open this world, sociology isn't something we normally have in high school. So when you begin to open up this world and talk about, um, people in groups and, and insiders and outsiders and, and privilege and lack of privilege. And when you start to really kind of dig into all this, I loved watching the students change. I loved it. It was, and so actually the, the link between my teaching life and my um, life at face-to-face -face is twofold. Um, Eileen Smith, who was the founder and the executive director face to face had also been an SSJ and I lived with her twice. Um, she actually drove me to my interview with John at St. Charles. We had lived together in Newark and um, my students would go from LaSalle to do service learning at face to face because it was so nearby. It was spitting distance. And one day Eileen called me and said, hey, the board is looking to anticipate my retirement and they're going to hire a director of operations. I said, oh, that's good. And she said, why don't you apply? <laughs> I, I burst out laughing. I said, you're kidding, right? And she said, no, I think you should. I said, I don't know anything about directing operations. I said, in fact, I don't even direct the operations in my own home. How could I possibly do it? She said, oh, apply, apply. I applied. Um, and I got the job. I knew from early on that this was my space. I mean, that I wasn't going to be honing my executive director skills um, as separate from this mission. I, I, this mission kind of pulls everything together for me. Being at St. Charles in that African-American community welcomed me in when they, and older people, younger people, it was, it was, humbling to such an extent, I can't even say. And then all my education. I mean, I have an undergrad in sociology and a graduate degree in sociology, but it, it weren't things that I just kind of 
stuck in a bag and, and left. I, I really had a great opportunity to really open all that up with other people, um, kind of delve into it with the students um, and help them to see our world as, as not as cut and dry, um, right and wrong, privileged, um, not deserving, whatever. Um, and so the, both my intellectual framework um, and my spirituality, I think I, I had mentioned that, like my, my, my own spirituality is, is based in a belief in a God who is um, abundantly loving. And I, I, the best way I can describe that is to say, as a mom, I know that I would, I would do anything for my, my girls, anything, and over and over and over and over again. And yet, I have done so many wrong things in my parenting. And the God that I believe in is thousands of times more, um, more than that. And so um, a God who is merciful and loving and generous in beyond the beyond, to me, folds over in grief at the suffering that, that we um, experience at face-to-face. -face. Um, there is no, I don't have a sense of a God of punishment at all. I have a sense of, um, how can I say it? Um, you know, life happens. We make choices. We make political, um, we make economic choices and those choices have have benefit for some and cause others suffering mm -hmm. and and the way i see god is that god is cowed and broken by the suffering that we visit on one another and so i have my intellectual and my spiritual and then my my lived experience of of relating with the wonderful people i've worked with i mean every I have to say, the people that I've worked with at Face to Face have taught me as much as the guests have, and the guests have taught me as much as the volunteers have. Um, I have been so, so, so lucky. I mean, really, I have been, it's not that I um, was actually prepared for anything that I did, but that what I did um, was, was um, for me, just an incredible, incredible privilege. Well, Mary Kay, I think it comes down to, you know, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Ah, very good. Yeah. So, so there you have it. Mm. And with that, we should probably wrap up because I could talk to you all day long, but I Me know too. the listeners are, are, are probably driving tired. needing to work <laughs> or they're walking their dog and their, their trip is about over. So um, can you tell everyone where they can find you? I would love yes. for you to share um, information about how they could reach face-to-face -face and yep. learn more about face-to-face, -face, donate to face-to-face, -face, be a volunteer at face-to-face, -face, so on and so forth. Okay, so th the first thing I would love to do is to invite people to come and see. Uh, as Robin has already attested, when people come, they're transformed. It is such a transformative experience. So come and see. We're in Germantown. Be not afraid. <laughs> um, we are right off Germantown Avenue. We have a nice big parking lot. There's space. We're at 123 East Price Street. 
Our website address is www.facetofacegermantown.org. You can find us on the web um, and, and bring your skills. So if you have legal skills, bring your legal skills. We, could, we love legal volunteers. If, you have, if you're a social worker and you can give us some time, some thought, join us that way. If you want to come and chop vegetables with our chef and create beautiful, literally beautiful and delicious meals, come that way. If you have no time at all, um, come and visit and, and become a donor to help us change the trajectory of people's lives. I forgot to mention that we also have a preschool program in our lower level. And we're working right now with those families. We partner with Mercy Neighborhood Ministry. And we are helping those families have a new trajectory for their lives by filling in whatever needs are um, are present in their families so that they can so that their children can have a different reality so and and then call me um our our number is two one five eight four nine zero one seven nine and if you want to reach me directly, just dial three hundred and we can begin a conversation. Love to have you at Face to Face. Mary Kay, thank you so much for being here. You were very Thanks, inspiring. Robin. Thanks, Robin. And that's a wrap, friends. Thank you so much for listening today. I am grateful to have you here with me. Before you go, have we connected on Instagram yet? If not, what are you waiting for? Find me at the Robin Graham. It's Robin with a Y. And take a screenshot of this episode and tag me in your stories so that I can find you too. You can also find me on Facebook at Robin Graham Photography and on LinkedIn as Robin Graham. I hope you'll follow me in those places so that we can stay connected and I can get to know more about you as well. And remember, if you found this information helpful or think a friend might enjoy it, please spread the word. Until next time, remember to smile.